People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. This is Fine Music Radio. The program is People of Note, and I'm very pleased to introduce you to my guest today, who is the distinguished South African actor John Carney. Let me just read you some of the many, many awards that John has won. His career has led to countless awards and honors, including honorary doctorates from the University of Durban-Westville, Rhodes University, Grahamstown, and the University of Cape Town, the Hiroshima Foundation Award for Peace, and the Fleur du Cup Lifetime Achievement Award. Then, way back in 2005, John received the Order of Ikamanga from the President of the Republic of South Africa, recognizing his contribution to the struggle for the liberation of his country through his work in the arts. And not only that, John is a patron of the Market Theatre Foundation, and in 2015 they named the main theatre the John Carney Theatre. And then following that in 2017, White's Road in Port Elizabeth, which is where John was born, was renamed John Carney Road. In 2018, he was awarded the J.F. Kennedy Gold Medal by the Kennedy Arts Center for his service to humanity and excellence. Just recently, a couple of weeks ago, he was awarded the World Impact Award for 2019 at the Naledi Theatre Awards, and just before that, the Lifetime Achievement at CakeNet Fiestas. I think I'm going to stop there, John, because the list is getting too long. <laughs> John Carney, welcome, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> you are such a busy man that I'm very pleased that you actually managed to get in so we can talk to you, because it's been long, long overdue for you to appear on this program. So thank you for your time. Thank you for the invitation. John, you're in this hugely successful play running at the Fugard, which has just ended, and that is called Koneni and the King, which you wrote, Janice Honeyman directed, and with Sir Anthony Scher. How You say that's been a huge success, you playing to sold-out houses. Indeed. we. It was 2009. Mm. I was doing The Tempest, uh, directed by Janice Honeyman, and Tony Shea was playing Pospero, and I was playing Caliban. Oh, right. We then uh, toured around England, and when we hit London, I said to him, I'd love to write something just for the two of us. I know that the roles in Prospero and, 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 and Caliban didn't give us meat, really, to chew, to, to work together. And I've known Tony since the 70s, and we've always sort of bumped into each other in England. We must work together. We must work together. And I forgot about that. Ten years later, 2018 January, after doing all these Hollywood movies, I had a bit of three months to myself. And I suddenly got drawn to that blank page. And as <laughs> Arthur Fugert says, don't write scene one. It's in the evening. The sun is setting. Just get to the point. Attack the page. And I started writing because the idea was now beginning to, to, to peculate in me. I had this idea of an incredibly classical actor, white South African, brilliant actor. He's sick. He's dying. He's got liver cancer and it's terminal but then he needs to be looked after as you know he would not want to go to a hospice he won't come to remain in hospital his agent hires a nurse to look after him in the comfort of his home 
Now, he's always lived alone. He got divorced quite early in his life. So when he's told by the nursing agency that we'll be sending Sister Kun to look after you. So the doorbell rings. I walk in, male, black, <laughs> Sister Kunene. And that's when we start. So we start with, get out of my house, get out. It's under that collision. It's got nothing to do with racism. It's got to do with privacy. You're in my space. Mm -hmm. If you're going to live with me, I will invite you. I didn't expect you. So the story then begins, these two men, miles apart in 2019, and slowly they had to live together. One needs the job. He's desperate. He lives in Soweto in Orlando. He needs the nurse because he can't do so many things for himself. But then the question is, you don't want a black nurse from the agency? I'll go, all right, you can stay. <laughs> <laughs> and isn't there, I read somewhere, isn't he, you said he was an actor, kind of a retired actor. Is he not trying to do another role or something? Am I getting mixed up? Yes, you get it right. He has accepted the role to play King Lear at the Artscape. <laughs> <laughs> at the Artscape in six months' time. Right. And then now he is d d making a decision. Perhaps he uses the King Lear as a, a destination, as, as, as planning ahead, saying that if I could just make it, then I could go. Many people do that sometimes. They set goals. And clinically, even doctors, which we talked to when I was researching the play, an oncologist says, sometimes you say to a patient, you've got a month or two, and they live seven years. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we think you're going to, you've got a bit of time, and you die the following week. So, yeah, yeah. But what they do mostly is to set goals. So he's got this goal. He's going to come down to Cape Town and play King Lear at the Artscape. <laughs> so what then we do, I use uh, Shakespeare as a relief valve. We fight about everything except Shakespeare because the character I play, Lunga, is a great fan of Shakespeare. Loved Shakespeare, studied Shakespeare in Isitosa in the late 60s. He also just likes Shakespeare. Mm. So there's that love between the two of them. So in the process, Jack Morris teaches Lunga about Shakespeare to celebrate the bard, the word, the everything. In the return, Lunga teaches Jack about humanity. I bet you Jack initially was possibly not very happy that Lunga liked Shakespeare. He probably thought, how can this black man like Shakespeare? He's trying to explain <laughs> in a simplistic, childish way that you don't understand this is the greatest writer on earth. And in Jack's mind, in Lunga's mind, he's just another writer. Mm. And the other important fact is that when Jack was in high school, he studied a translated version of Julius Caesar in Isitosa, which is true. I studied Julius Caesar in 1959 at the Cowan High School in Port Elizabeth, New Brighton, in Isitosa. In fact, in the year 2000, when we were celebrating three, 400 years of Shakespeare, I was invited to go to the Royal Shakespeare Company to speak on the impact of Shakespeare on other cultures by the British Council. I spoke about other cultures' impact on Shakespeare. <laughs> I, I told them that in 1959, I studied Shakespeare in Isikosa. Later in my life, I bumped into the English version.
<laughs> you underline yes, that? Yes, underline version, yes. Yeah, yes. I bumped into the English version. I was a bit let down by Shakespeare. When you saw the English version? When I saw the English version. <laughs> he didn't capture Mlele's potency and tragic and the pathos and the power and the pain, of, especially of what you call the conspirators. Were mm. they revolutionaries? Did they overtopple a dictatorship? Or were they terrorists? who just wanted to overthrow the state. And this was what my teacher was talking about in 1959. So I used that experience in the play. So when I tell Jack about having studied Shakespeare in Isikosa, he gets very excited. (laughs) That was the end point that opens our lives, that we come from different worlds, but we brought together by the love of Shakespeare. John, I want to talk to you a little bit more about Shakespeare translations, especially into some of our South African languages. But what's your first piece of music? Now, I'm intrigued to know what you decided to choose for our program. Pavarotti, Nesundora. Oh, Oh, that huge guy. He had this biggest jacket and a white (laughs) scarf. And when he bellowed that, it just, you stop and listen. Have you ever heard him live? No, okay, no. I've, okay. I've got a couple of CDs and DVDs of him. Mm-hmm. It's brilliant. I mean, when he passed on, it was a great loss to the music world. I mean, all over.
that song certainly became, well, I could call it an aria, became so famous when it was used in the Soccer World Cup. There you heard Nessun Dorma sung by Pavarotti, Luciano Pavarotti, with the orchestra conducted by Zubin Mehta. The first trace of my guest on People of Note this week, the actor John Carney. John, you were talking about language just now and the impact of Shakespeare on language and culture, or the, or you said, I think, the impact of culture on Shakespeare. On Shakespeare. <laughs> what I find so interesting is that when you came to read it in English for the first time, it was so strange to you and almost disappointing. With it being in Icosa, is it a rich? It, does the language suit, adapt easily to Shakespeare's concepts? Absolutely. I mean, any any translation. But what used to fascinate me are the Africans' translation of Chekhov. It's so guttural, so earthy, so right. It's almost like Chekhov had written in Afrikaans and then was translated into <laughs> Russian. <laughs> right. It matches the language. So that's what happens when you take Shakespeare into Isikosa or any of the indigenous languages. For instance, there is a scene in Julius Caesar when Mark Antony discovers the body of Caesar lying at the foot of the statue of Pompey. In English, he says, Oh, pardon me, thou bleeding piece of earth, to be meek and gentle unto these butchers. Now I'm going to do it in Isikosa. Au di kolele, wena gada lopisai. Ugban di lula menditambe, kwezi zikhelem. Wow. Goodness. Again, it's much more, well, it sounds guttural, and it's it's much more earthy. Ethy. Then the English, English is so civilized, isn't it? It's very civilized <laughs> and very polite. Very polite. And it just means he was furious. Yeah. And yeah. then that's why then when Cassius and Brutus are discussing, should we allow him to speak at the funeral? He wasn't friendly. You could see he wasn't friendly. Mm. So mm. that's for me the drive part of the language. I love language. It celebrates. I celebrate humanity through language. You know, and then of course, Saul Plagi translated Merchant of Venice and Measure for Measure. And he was working on Othello when he passed away. Of course, Julius Nyerere also translated Merchant of Venice into Swahili. And there are various these translations all over Africa. It's almost, I told the British Council on that celebration of Shakespeare 400 years, I said, I'm so glad you British left South Africa. <laughs> but I'm also ha- more happy that you left the complete works of Shakespeare <laughs> with us. <laughs> Must be amazing to be faced with that at school as a young man. You said in 1959 a teacher introduced you, and that was Julius Caesar, wasn't it? Yes, that was Julius Caesar. Prior to that, uh, when I was in the primary, lower primaries, we had Mr. Ormond, who was the Bantu inspector in the Eastern Cape. He would visit schools to evaluate the education of the native child. My teacher, Miss Nzingo, would then have to do a little performance for him. I was always chosen to recite a sonnet, <laughs> which she called Shakespeare's Love Letters to Anonymous. <laughs> in, did you have to do it in English? Or? In English, in of English. course. Oh. Yeah, I would then stand up there and say, Love is not love with altars when alteration finds or bend with a remover to remove. 
Oh no, it is a fixed. And my teacher would say, no, John, fixed. Iambic <laughs> pentameter, fixed. <laughs> I remember those moments. Or I would stand up to the applause of the class and other teachers because there was this little tiny kid who was so excited by the language English. And I said, shall I compare thee to a summer day? Wow. That was my love in the beginning, just those sonnets. Those things were just done because I needed to pass this grade to the next grade. But it was then, actually, that moment in 1959, when Mr. Budaza told us that we are going to do a Shakespeare play, said, oh, here we go again, must be Twelfth Night, or some of those long plays of Shakespeare. He said, in Isikosa, we all stood up <laughs> and brightened. And he also made us stand up. When you read, stand up. When I then went to, in 2005, when I went to Stratford, the Royal Shakespeare Company, I then interacted with the education department, and they were talking about stand up to Shakespeare. Uh, That's what, uh, whenever you said, when they work in schools, they make the student stand up. You don't read Shakespeare sitting down, because <laughs> his scripts were active. They were on set and it was changing lines like improvisation and workshop project. That's how it is. And I told him that my teacher told me in 1959, stand up <laughs> to Shakespeare. <laughs> that put them in their place. <laughs> when did you first do Shakespeare on stage, professionally? Professionally, it was Hamlet with Janet Sussman directing. It was a market theater production. No, actually, it was Othello. In 1987. I thought, because I saw that Othello, and then I thought, did you do Hamlet before that? I thought that one with that Janet Sussman. Janet Sussman, Othello. And who was the Desdemona? Joanna Weinberg. Joanna Weinberg. She now lives in Australia. I had just done a play called The Native Who Caused All the Trouble, which was a work by Vanessa Cook and Robert Whitehead and Danny Keogh that created its script out of a newspaper in Cape Town, Cape Argus, about a man who had a house in Rylands and then went back to the rural areas. He comes back, Rylands has been rezoned and redeclared an area for whites, but he still wants his house where he left it. So that was the play about, which incidentally, when I first saw Nelson Mandela uh, at his home in Orlando in 1990, he said, ah, here is the native who caused all the trouble. <laughs> I thought... Tata, he said, oh, we heard about that play you did. There is even a video of it, which is the one that brought me while I was in Portsmouth. <laughs> really? I was amazed <laughs> that uh, he knew who I was. Yeah. So we did that, and Othello was incredible, incredible production. Again, the challenge of the African playing Shakespeare. Again, the fact that the Shakespeare is a Moor, and yet the previous performances were always by white actors yes. with makeup, with on makeup on, yes. and all that. And they also sounded like the people of Venice. Yes. So they also sort of were very English Shakespeare accent. Yeah. And yet it is clear the man is an outsider. Yes. So that was our first discussion with Janet, Janet Sussman as the director, is am I going to go the bard or am I going to be an African in the role? Because it's written in blank verse and sometimes in prose. So it allows you to, uh, to mouth the words and inhabit them. So I played Othello as a Corsa tribesman. I saw myself as a great general, oh. and this 
Venetians are in troubles with the Turks in, in the Ottoman and they when they need someone to fight and they hire a mercenary <laughs> and the mercenary is me black from Africa from distinguished Africa. warrior he wins the war for them they celebrate him they give him everything and now they say we are wonderful they even tell their daughters that he's a good friend of the family but when he falls in love with the Duke daughter there's no big affair yeah now, and you've taken this whole station. niceness too far. Yeah. yeah. But, John, there was a controversy. Wasn't that the famous controversy about the kiss on stage <laughs> between a black man and a white lady? Well, the kiss was two years before oh. in Miss Julie with Sandra Prinslow. Oh, indeed. Yeah. I remember Sandra telling me about that. Theater, yes, at the Baxter yes. Theatre. The kiss was released about three seconds. Uh-huh. She just touched the lips. The controversy it caused. Oh, yeah. Even Dr. Trenner oh. in Parliament said, As on Snifusachtachni, so sali tu comes lake. How prophetic. <laughs> right. How prophetic. I mean, let's have another piece of music, John. What is your next piece there? Oh, The Shins Does List. Oh, the film, yes. The film. Oh, I saw that movie by Steven Spielberg and a very good friend of mine who played Ralph Fiennes with the German officer. I did a movie with him later called Coriolanus. Yes. As a movie. And I played General Cominius. But it was that moment when that theme played, you could understand how sometimes music complements and further enhance the story other than just being a piece of music to play underneath.
Well, that really beautiful theme that John Thank Williams you. wrote for Schindler's List, and that was another choice of my guest on this week's edition of People of Note, the distinguished South African actor John Carney. You really have had quite a career, haven't you, John? Where, how did it start, by the way? Was it when you were at school being taught Shakespeare? It was at school, really, and then the nativity plays where I always played uh, the shepherd with no roles, no dialogue, and it, it just stayed with me. I come from a long line of storytellers. My grandmother was incredible, always wanted to tell you a story, but we knew grandmama's stories where because you've done something wrong. <laughs> you've got to wait for that scorpion sting at the end, almost those last two capulets. She was like incredible that, okay, I'll tell you a story, and we looked at each other, what did you do? What did you do? Why do we deserve a story? And she would say to me, one day she said, Tell me a story. I said, no, I'm too young. I was about 9, 11. He says, well, I don't know any stories. He said, then tell one of mine. I said, oh, no. By the time you're halfway your story, I'm asleep already. <laughs> and then she said to me, make it up. That's how I became a writer. Make it up. Gosh. And it stayed with me about the story. And the first story I told my grandmom, I made it up about these seven frogs swimming in a little pond in the forest on a beautiful day. And while they were enjoying the water, they look across the pond. There were seven little snakes. They jump out of the water. We can't be with them. Our parents have warned us against them. And the same conversation was taking place on the other side. But as being children, they forgot these differences, jump in the pond, and they had a wonderful time. The snakes were swimming too fast across the pond. The frogs stayed longer underneath as amphibians. And it was incredible. And 4 o'clock they said, hey, my mom's going to be worried. We have to go home now. And the snakes said, yes, moms are like that. Now, we we'll see you tomorrow, guys. See you tomorrow. The snakes got home and said, daddy, we met fantastic friends, the frogs. They got things protruding on their bodies. It looks like arms and their tongues are strange. And they feel gluey when you touch them. And Papa Snake said, invite them tomorrow for dinner. And Mama Snake giggled and said, they don't know they would be the dinner. <laughs> In the next pause side of the pond, the little frogs got home and they're also excited telling mom and dad about all this wonderful time they had with these guys who were sleazy and rough skins and they got nothing and they keep swiggling on the water and they swim very fast and mama snake said, what were they? He says, they were little snakes and papa snake said, call Stutterford we're moving <laughs> Interesting that that came up when you were so young. That yes. that thinking. That thinking. Yes. Yeah. Were you when you were young? Were you very aware of the apartheid system? You can't miss it if you live in South Africa. Yeah. yeah. You know that you go, especially there's this going to town thing on Saturdays, where you have to go buy groceries and mm. okay, and you're looking for clothes because there were no shops in the black communities except a small general dealer that will sell you paraffin bread and mill mill and rice. But if you wanted to buy a shirt or anything, you have to go to town. 
So that became very clear to us that there were two worlds that we needed to maneuver and deal with. And our parents always gave us kind of like a, a very subtle warning. Stop touching everything. Stay close to me. Hold my jacket. Hold my hand. It was the most unbelievable, strange journey for a child. You walk in a store. All the white kids are playing with the toys. They're testing them. You can't touch toys. You can't do this. And the greatest thing, which were for me, was there were no toilet facilities. So if we were going to shopping on Saturday, mom would tell us to stop drinking water at 10 and not drink again. Because she doesn't want to be dealing with you saying in town, I want a wee-wee. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. then if you want to wee-wee, you've got to go all the way to the railway station, which is far from where the shops are. So that becomes a reality. Mm. But the parents try as much as they can to cover the ugliness, mm. to give you the best life they can. And you can see around you how other families are struggling more than yours. I had a mom who was working. My father was a policeman and a good salary. Had a car. My grandfather had a farm. So my life wasn't that I was never poor, to, be, to tell the straight truth. Mm. But I could see around me when my mom would give me an apple, she would say, sit down, eat it. And I wouldn't. Because there's five friends outside who are waiting for me to cut that apple into five pieces. And my dad said, let him go. And my friends are waiting, bite, bite. It was yes. fantastic, the sharing community. Yeah, so yeah. we were aware, but it was not the kind of discussion in the house. You know, what was more discussed in the house were things about cultural and rituals and, and, and religion. Mm-hmm. And those were things that, but the politics were like, as soon as my other my father's friend comes in and my father said, go and play. What are you doing here? You thought, you just called us back now. (laughs) (laughs) And you knew they were going to talk politics. Oh, okay. So you have to be out. (laughs) Let's have some more music, John. Let's have another piece of music, Mr. John Carney. Vivaldi, I see, coming up. Yes, the uh, Four Seasons. Oh, right, okay. Is this a favorite of yours, the Four Seasons? Yes, that's a favorite. It's... (laughs) People, it's a huge favorite with everyone, I must tell you. Here's the famous movement from the Spring Concerto.
That's the Four Seasons, the Spring Concerto, part of the Spring Concerto from the Four Seasons by Vivaldi. And another choice there from my guest, John Carney, the distinguished actor who's with me, telling us wonderful stories, John. It's good to have you here. You you. know, I was just thinking, you mentioned Schindler's List just now and the importance of music. Is music important to you? Do you ever listen? Do you sit and listen to music? Absolutely. I mean... If music be the food of love, play yes, on. There you go. <laughs> and it and South Africans, especially Africans in our country, have used music as a soothing ointment, also as a means of drumming up emotions, also as a means of celebration, or also, I mean, having to deal with tragic circumstances. People used to say, why do Africans always sing? Even when someone dies, they sing. When they celebrate, they sing. They even sing struggle songs and they chase with the tear gas and they're still singing. Because if we did not sing, we'd run out of tears. We would spend the rest of our lives crying. So music becomes that component in our lives that appeals to the soul. Somehow music makes me forget whatever is, the, is, is in my surroundings. It isolates me into me only and Tchaikovsky. When Beethoven plays, I can't see anyone. I'm listening almost with my eyes closed because that's what art does. Art does not address itself to a crowd. It's not a rugby match or a football match. We don't go to stadiums to celebrate. But when you sit in a theater or in a, on, 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 on a beautiful gallery or in a, in a hall and listen to classical or music, you're an individual speaks to you alone. It's only when the music is finished, you look at the person you're with and say, that was beautiful. (laughs) That's what art does. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I smile when my grandchildren and uh, I play some of the classical music and they say, oh, that is uh, Mickey Mouse. Remember the comics? Oh, yes, the yes, cartoons? Yes. yes. The Disney uh, underlines there as a background music. That's it's right. classic music. Yeah. It's a fantastic introduction at a very early stage. Like a famous yes. film, Fantasia. Fantasia, like yes. yes. And I'm surprised that when I play this, this song, my grandson says it's Disney. <laughs> it's Mickey Mouse. <laughs> no, it's not Mickey Mouse. Then I realize he's right. Because that's the track for that. And as I said again, is that. Sometimes music becomes a background and it doesn't add or accentuate or impact itself. But sometimes music, like in Schindler's List, readied us, prepared us, soothed us, and made us feel and understand. And in fact, it was incredible. When I did Harold Painter's One for the Road, I played the captain, evil man who's torturing a family post-Second World War in England, directed by Bobby Heaney. I always played Tchaikovsky while I'm asking Dorothy N. Gould about her husband's activities with the Nazis. I remember the play was only 45 minutes long. People were walking out at 42. They can't take it anymore. <laughs> it was unbelievably strong play because Bobby wanted me to play the family and that Danny Keo would be the uh, white man in South African context, mm-hmm. interviewing a black family for their involvement in the struggle. I said, it's too easy, Bobby. Let's do the other way around. Let me be the bad guy. Let Danny and his white family be in trouble. <laughs> People were saying it has done more damage to future race relations than anything in this <laughs> oh, country. Dear. But it was sold out. Well, there you go. <laughs> yes. They come in and they go. <laughs> 
Now, your writing, I just want to go back to your writing, has that always been parallel? Because one thinks of you mostly as an actor, but you've written such a lot. Have you always wanted to write, and has it always been part of your life? When I met Arthur Fugard in 1965, I didn't go there because there was a group called Serpent Players. They were a drama group doing little short plays. I went there for Arthur to mentor me as a writer. Ah, okay. We were clear. I yeah. had a thousand stories to tell. Yeah. But I didn't know the structure, the format, and how I could use it, how I could package it. And Arthur said, well, what are you going to do then? During rehearsals and we're making the plays together, you make notes so that you remind us what the process was today, where we ended. So it was my job to say, in the workshop yesterday, you said this. That was nice. Could you say it again? Or some actor would say, what did I say? That's how I started. But then when the play started, that it needed about five actors. So I would give them the least role, because I would then be also going to write things down. That's how my writing appetite started. Uh-huh. Yeah, And then, of course, created so many plays, about six or seven from uh, the last bus on this place we did, Sins in Law. Sizwe Banzi is dead and the island were the sixth and seventh in the processes which we called experimenting in playmaking. So those were, it was then when in 1972, we exploded on world stages with Sizwebanzi is Dead and the Island, went to England, five-star review, even from local free distributed newspapers on the corner stand of a little post office, even from all. And then we went to New York and we won the Tony Award in 1975 for Best Actor. Then from that moment, John Carney, the actor, took over. It almost like from this project to this movie to that television series, it was really like I felt in 2001 when I took over the market theater when many men have left uh, the market. I just began to be so involved in administration. I was even the chairperson of the National Arts Council, advisor of acting to the minister. I felt like there's something missing in my life. I wish I could get time to do once upon a time. In 2002... I wrote nothing but the truth, which has been a set work since 2009 of many high schools, both private and public schools, and it's been celebrated all over the world. I love when I walk down in Cape Town, I'm at a shopping complex, and these kids come to me and say, how what? See, Paul, <laughs> the character I played, yeah. they tell me, I studied nothing but the truth. They know me more for the writing of that play, more than the actor. The, uh, and of okay. course, I did the Black Panther. Now I'm famous again for a comic book. <laughs> <laughs> he says with a, a slight smirk. John, let's take another piece of music. I see we've got uh, Rossini coming up. Yeah. This is the closing, the famous gallop of the Rossini William oh. Tell Overture. Yes, indeed.
famous gallop that ends the William Tell <laughs> Overture. Uh, Favourites of yours, John. John Carney's my guest here on People of Note. We've only got a few minutes left, John. Time Thanks. rushes by. So I just wanted you were talking about your family and all that. You you live in Johannesburg, don't you? I now live in Johannesburg. I left in 1986 after a tragic death of my younger brother who was a poet, and he was shot at the funeral and when the whole uprising process. And it hurt me very much, and I decided that it was time. Mm. The idea was really to leave South Africa. And I went past the market theater to say goodbye to my friend Barney Simon and uh, many men. And Barney said, why do you want to leave? I said, I can't. My life, I, I just feel not safe. Yeah. And he said, well, I tell you what stay with us at the market as my associate artistic director. And if after six months you still feel you want to leave, it's fine. And I loved Bunny very much. He was a great friend of Arthur Fugard. The six months became my life in Joburg. <laughs> I never left. And uh, that's what I stayed. So that, that, that for me was the most beautiful moment is to stay and begin now to use more time writing. Mm-hmm. And you do enjoy coming down to Cape Town, I hope, to the artscape or wherever, or to the Fugard where you've been. My career blossomed in Cape Town, 1972, at the Space Theatre. Oh, yes. Uh, with Cesar Banzi is Dead, run by Brian Osbury and grand lady Yvonne Bryceland. Yes, remember her. My Gosh. next play, which was my premiere as a solo writer, Nothing But the Truth, premiered at the Baxter Theatre. My next play, also called Missing, also premiered at the Baxter Theatre. Now I have the next play, which is Kunene and the King. It premiered, world premiere was in England at the RSC. Now this is again at the Fuga Theatre. There's something about Cape Town being the right platform to launch my work. Ah, that's good news for <laughs> us down here, John. And now that the play has ended, Kunene and the King, what are you going to do now? What's next on your very busy schedule? Or is it a secret? Well, I have um, two movies coming. And as you know, the confidentially close, confidentially yes, close of, of uh, Hollywood. You just say I've got two projects coming, which I'll be doing because I've just finished Murder Mysteries with Adam Sandler and Jennifer Aniston, which opens on the 10th of July. Mm -hmm. 10th of June, sorry. I'm going to Hollywood on the red carpet for that nonsense and walk there and smile oh. and go away. Excellent. And then Excellent. There's, there's, of course, The Lion King, which also opens on the 19th of July. And then September, August, September, I'm shooting a movie in Kenya. And then October, November, I'm shooting another movie. One part of it is in Cape Town. The other part is in Norway. And then in December, I've asked my agent, I need to spend time at home. Because I start again January, the, uh, the Royal Shakespeare Company is organizing a tour. There are many possibilities that will happen to Kunene and the King. Gosh, that is good news. And what a year you have ahead of you then. As well. indeed, indeed. indeed. And you do, as you were saying, you do lots of film work, John. Do you, do you enjoy working in film or do you prefer the theater or is it both? You work on film because you're going to be paid a lot of money and have uh, take care of the family and stop panicking about what's happening tomorrow. You do television to be very popular because you're invading people's I mean, bedrooms and living rooms. You do theater for the love of it.
Uh, you do theater because it expresses your soul. You do theater because you have the right, like a president, to address the nation. <laughs> they listen and they get you. And there's that immediacy. There's that power. There's those applause that feed you and feel like embraced by your own community and your own society. Wonderfully put. Wonderfully put, John. But um, do you have, this might be a difficult question, do you have a favorite role that you've done that you think that was the best role I've ever done and I did it brilliantly? Well, as Hollywood insists, you say, it's the one I'm doing now. (laughs) (laughs) No, I've done incredible great roles. I mean, Master Harold and the Boys, Mm, The Bands of Dead, The Island. I think the uh, first time I saw you was in Master Harold. Master Harold and the Boys, I mean, Othello. I've done incredible. And this this role, I'm Sipo in Nothing But The Truth. But this role in uh, Kunene and the King, to explore the difficulties of a relationship of master servant and then turn it around to best friend and turn it around to dependent and make it at the end as where we are today. It's a very too tough to handle. And Tony and I told Anthony share at the end of this 95 minutes, we're so exhausted because we have invaded each other's lives and privacy, intertwined our souls. And it's an incredible experience because that's the funny thing. I don't write for myself. I don't see myself when I write the role. But the problem is whenever I hand it over to a director, there is always one condition. You play the role, I'll direct. (laughs) (laughs) John, we have to leave it there, unfortunately. I'm sure we could go on for a long time, especially with you in your life. And now we have a little bit of jazz coming up to end the program. My favorite jazz artist, Miles Davis. So what? I saw him in New York at the Lincoln Center, the Avery Fisher Hall. He was a very tiny man, very delicate, incredibly well-dressed, spoke to the to the trumpet, almost playing it, bent over, looking, almost playing to the floor with Jack DeJohnette and a massive orchestra. It was unbelievable. John Carney, thank you for sharing stories with us and thank you for your time. And thank you for inviting me to have a little bit of a conversation with my friends in Cape Town and the Republic of South Africa.
People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. FMR.